You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. You can turn your copy uh, of God's Word to John 17. As Blair said, that's where we're going to be camping out. And um, I just want to start with, with this a couple questions for us to, to kind of get our minds uh, set back in John 17. If you can with me, um, think about this, this question. In your lifetime, in the course of your life, if you were to count up all the sermons or speeches or lectures, or monologues that you have listened to, how many do you think you have heard in your lifetime? Now, some of us, depending on our age, right? Some of us, depending on our occupation, maybe, that number's gone up. What if I threw in, like, podcasts? Would that jump some of you, like, way high? Some of us are, some of us are podcasters. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you think you've made it to the thousand, single thousand, maybe? There you go. There you go. The the anybody two thousand? You feel like a couple people? Yeah, I feel like you're podcasting, right? <laughs> oh man, I counted Blair. Um, in case you didn't know, seminary. If you went to church every Sunday and you went to chapel every or Bible college, church and uh, chapel, I think we'd be at seven hundred just alone from college. Just so you know. Don't know if that's encouraging or not. Now. So you got that number in your mind. It may be a huge number uh, or, or whatever it is. Now I want you to stop and I want you to think about, out of all those thousands, however, whatever number you picked, how many truly transformed your life? How many would you say that you look back at all the ones you had that, that, that you can point back and, and you can say that lecture, that message, that sermon, that whatever you want to call them, change the trajectory of my life. And, and I think about that, it's, that in, in no way is, I'm, I'm preaching a sermon. It's not like I'm trying to belittle preaching or sermons or whatever, right? But we all like have those moments where God just changed our life by something somebody said. Like we were going one way and someone said something and it just whew, took us a totally different path. And I, and I bring this up kind of an introduction as we hit John 17, because um, I looked it up. Blair started, Pastor Blair started preaching on September 10th. He started preaching John chapter 13 on the washing of the feet. Okay, We're in John 17 now. Jesus is finally going to be buried by the end of John 19. So that means from John 13 to John 19 is all one 24-hour period in John's life. So moved him. The sermon, the, the teaching, Jesus' final teaching so moved him. That final 24 hours so moved him. You know how many chapters are in the book of John? I counted already. 21. So that means seven of the 21 is about one 24-hour day. The most significant day in John's life, I would think he would argue, right? A third of his gospel, according to John, 
is on this 24-hour period. I think he'd argue the most significant day in human history is in this 24-hour period. And so we're smack dab in the middle. Jesus has had his illustration of the foot washing. He's had his illustration of all the other, uh, and the teaching and the preaching. He's, he's, he's done it, and he's trained it. And just like if you were to sit in a lecture or a lesson or a sermon, he's going to end. How do we end our messages? It's like the, the way you do it. You end with a, a, a prayer. And what are, what are we about to hear? We're about to hear Jesus' final prayer as he closes his message to his disciples before he goes to the cross. So we're actually we're going to take three weeks to cover this because it just breaks up into three beautiful sections. And so I'll be covering the first piece. And just think about how profound this is to John. All these years after, you realize he's not writing this down the day after Jesus comes back from the dead. These are years later. He's been chewing on these words. This day changed his life and it changed the world. So let's read it. John chapter 17, verse 1 through 5. Just a short little passage. Last time Blair gave me 45 verses. This time he gives me five. I don't, he's really stretching me. Okay, John 17. Let's read this. When Jesus had spoken these words, that's his teaching that we've been um, kind of working our way through. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Hmm. So good, so good, so good. All right, as a, you know, I'm a teacher by trade, teach Bible a lot. What word sticks out in that, those five verses? Any word sticks out repeated several times, and I always tell people, don't say thee. Thee is not the correct answer when, when the teacher says that. What word is, any words repeated that stick out to you? Glory, glorify, right? This is the word. It's, it's said how many times? I'll see if you're looking down, you can't see the answer. It's five. It said five times in that short verse, in those short couple verses, five verses, five times he talks about glory or glorify. Okay, so no wonder when we're going to drill in, we're going to drill in on this main takeaway. Jesus deserves glory. Jesus deserves glory. Now, before we get into that, before we start going through verse by verse, I want to make sure we are on the same page about glory. Okay? When I hear glory in my, in my like, non-Bible um, you know, mind, right? I think of, for some reason, what comes to my mind is celebrity. Okay? I don't know why. Maybe you can relate to me. But I hear glory and I think of some sort of celebrity. Um, and, and, and as if God has some, um, some, some awe or aura about him that is like, oh my gosh, God is here. You know, if some who, who, who famous would walk in that we'd go, oh, we'd all start whispering, right? I would love in this room to gather everybody, and if we could, for one second, set aside our pride and arrogance, right, and our, like, one-upness, right, and figure out who the most famous person anyone that we ever met or saw, right? I think we'd have some cool 
answers. I, I, I think like in a room this size, we could, we could have potentially someone who's met a president or someone who has, I don't know, wouldn't it be cool if someone had met the queen before she died? That would be crazy, right? And I think about that like that is God's glory, is his fame. And I'm like, I, I always want to be that cool guy who like, oh, a, a famous person walked in and I'd just be like, whatever. I am not, unfortunately. Um, this got put to the test a couple years ago. I was at HEB in San Antonio and an old Spurs player, Bruce Bone, walked in and I, I was a schoolgirl. I mean, I was so... I was so excited, and he wasn't even like, I mean, he was like the fifth guy on the course, but I was like, oh, this first guy, you know, Bruce Bowen, he made three-pointers. So uh, that is not what God's glory is. It is not about a celebrity. God's glory, it, it has a, uh, it has a, it, it's tangible. It has a, a weightiness to it, a presence to it. It is not like our vain glory, right? That's what, that's what the old school English calls it, vain glory. Right? That's what humans have. Because everyone always says when you get to know the person, the people are just what? A famous person is just what? Another person. That's not God. When you get to know him, you're not like, oh, he's just another person. No, you're like, whoa, he's still incredible. Okay? He still has that aura about him. So what we're going to do to help us, we are going to look at a couple passages about God's glory. And so glory here, I love that Easton's Bible Dictionary calls it the infinite perfections of God. That's what glory is, the infinite perfections of God. So if you took God's infinite qualities and how amazing they are and you compress them all, that is his glory. There is a presence about it. There is a weightiness about God's glory. So we got a couple passages here. And if you want, you can start finger into Psalm 24. That's where we're going to end. And we're going to read Psalm 24. But I want to walk us through these passages of what is biblical glory and where do we see it? So what is biblical glory is that it is the infinite perfections of God. Where do we see it? Look at this. I love that we have preached through Exodus recently. The first one is in the cloud. You guys remember when the Israelites are leaving captivity out of Egypt, and they're heading towards Mount Sinai. And who is guiding them? God is guiding them. And where is God? He is a cloud. He is a cloud coming, and he is standing over them, right? And the cloud like shifts and moves. And at one point, the cloud fights Pharaoh for them. It's this crazy, crazy experience. And as much as we're like, yeah, right, they're like, how can you make that up? You know what I mean? That's crazy. And yet, that's what, that's what it was like. It was a cloud and that was God's glory, right? And then, and then in Exodus 24, this is on Mount Sinai. When, when, when Moses goes up and he takes up the 70 elders for this meal with God, they're going to dine with God. And they're going to have this, this reception after this wedding. And so they sit down with God and the cloud comes down and rests upon the mountain. And anyone who's not up there is like, oh my goodness, what is going on? The, the mountain is on fire because there's lightning and fire and smoke and cloud, and this is what's happening up there. This is God's, it's described in the text as this is God's glory, okay? It's not lightning or fire or, or smoke. It is God's glory coming down on the mountain. The next one, in the tabernacle. So remember, if you remember in the story, um, Moses goes up to the mountain of God on Mount Sinai, and he gets all the instructions. Because remember, God is, is marrying his people. He's going to move in with his people. But in order to move in, all of his people have what? What are they living in? They're living in tents, and so God needs a tent. And so he gives them instructions on how to build a tent. We call that the tabernacle. 
right? So, so they build the tabernacle, they make it, and then they, they dedicate it and get it ready for God. And then that, the reason that they know that God is moving in with them is they watch and they see the cloud do what? Come down, descend on the tent, right? So now God is living with his people and he's living in a tent with them. So the next part, the temple, this is, a, this is the next thing. Solomon, David, and all of his wisdom and all of his love and passion for God, David says, I, God, I want to, I'm tired of you living in a tent. All of us have houses, God, and you need a house. I'm tired of you living in a tent. And so David, put, God puts it on his heart that he wants to build the temple, but God says, no, you can't build a temple. Your son is going to be the guy who builds the temple. And so Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. And it's beautiful and wonderful. And at the dedication ceremony, what happens? The what? The cloud comes down. God's glory comes down and it sits. And the temple is God's house on earth, right? The temple, we sang it about, this is God's house. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? We're talking about God in the heavenly realms. He dwells among his people in the temple. And you can go, if you want to go to God's house at that time, you could go to the temple and you could, you could, you could see God's house. But guess what you couldn't do? You couldn't, could you see God? No, because if you went in there, you would what? Die, okay? So God's glory is this amazing, powerful, mystical uh, smoke that, is, that descends upon the temple. But then look in, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare God's glory. When do the heavens declare God's glory? Anybody want to guess? When are the heavens, when you look up in the heavens and you go, whoa, I am a small person. Oh, all the time, all the time. How about anybody at night? When at night? The stars, right? The stars. Now in my house, unfortunately, I live in New Braunfels, I can see two stars on a good night. Okay. Not what we're talking about here, right? Not the ancient world's perspective, right? Because they don't have, uh, what do they call it? Light pollution, right? <laughs> they don't got that, right? You can see the stars in the cities as well as you can see them anywhere else back then, okay? And anybody ever seen, like, you go out to Big Bend, or my wife, my wife's family is from, oops, my wife's family is from northern Michigan, and I'm talking like pretty much Canada, okay? There's, Toronto is further south than where my wife is from. And so... When we go up there, especially in the summer, on a clear night, if you go out, the stars are just, I mean, it just, it just is mind-boggling. There's just stars everywhere, right? That declares God's glory. It, it shouts, God is glorious to us when we go out and we see the sky, the heavens. And this last one, so we're going to be at Psalm 24. Let's read it. Oh, I didn't flip. I told you guys to flip, but I didn't flip. That's okay. Psalm 24, let's read it because God's word is amazing and incredible. Verse 1, this is a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God owns everything on this earth, and he owns all the people and all the things and all the stuff. You guys know that? Why? Why does he own everything on this earth? Because he is the one who made it, right? He made it. And before, remember, Genesis 1 idea is that the, the waters are, are on the earth and he does what? He causes the earth to come out and the land to come out and he holds back the sea so that the earth can come up out and, and, and he establishes it and he creates it. And so he is in charge. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who gets to go up to the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So who gets to go up to God? If everything, God, God owns everything. He's created everything. He's in charge of everything on land, right? He's in charge. Who can go up to see him? And the answer is whoever has what? Clean and pure hands. Whoever is righteous. Great, good news for us, right? That means what? If we're righteous, we get to go up and see him, except for the problem is what? We're not righteous. We are sinners. So who, who can do this? Amen. You're spoiling it for him. Okay, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. God is the king of glory. What is biblical glory? We talk about how it's this cloud. It's a descending upon. He is the king of it. He is the ruler of glory. You guys, that idea is just, what does that mean? You got to go home and get some tea and think about that. What does it mean for God to be the king of something like glory? It means he rules over it. He owns it. He's established it. So now we're on a similar page. We're getting there on glory. I don't know that it's super crystal clear, but we're going to need a working definition. Notice here too, God continually, and I, and I want to point this out. If you're ever reading through scripture, you're just like, I wish God would be more clear. God gives us illustrations. Anybody feel that way? I wish God would be more clear. God gives us illustrations and his illustrations are clarity. You get that? His illustrations are clarity. You know why? Because we are, we are just finite creatures trying to understand an infinite, awesome God. And so he gives us hundreds of illustrations to try to, try to help us out. Trust me, he, he, is, he is trying his best. It's not him. It's, it's us who's lacking, okay? So let's have that working definition. We'll continue to meditate on it as we move back to our passage in John. So flip back to John 17 with me. Glory sticks out, as you guys all said. Glory is the word that sticks out, right? We would have given... Half credit if you would have said eternal life, but we'll get to that. So looking back, Jesus deserves glory. Why does Jesus deserve glory? Point number one, because he glorifies the Father. Jesus deserves glory because he glorifies the Father. Now you're going to have to hang on with me a little bit, but let's reread our passage. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Let's pause there. The hour has come. Pastor Blair talked about this, reminded us all throughout John, there's been this theme of, of the hour. The hour is not yet. The time is not here. The hour is not. The, you know what? The hour's here. Jesus knows it. You know why? Uh, several things. He knows that they're wanting to kill him. He knows that they are upset that the, 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 the religious leaders are done with him. He also knows that he is in the midst. Remember, this 24-hour period, he is in the midst of celebrating Passover. He knows it's time. It's lined up perfectly for him to die on this day. All the signs are pointing to the hour is here. And so he says it again, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you 
since you have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus asks for glory. He asks for glory. He has been a man on a mission on this earth. He has served, he's taught, he's healed, and he is ready to receive his glory. He is the only one, only man, who actually lived an entire life worrying about the Father's glory, not his own. And as he comes to the end, he says, Father, glorify me. Now notice, do you see that? Glorify your Son. Why? It's not even in, in, even in Jesus' own glory, it's not about himself. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even in his own glory, Jesus is worried about who? The Father. Even in his own suffering, as the suffering, as the hour comes, Jesus' mind turns to glory. And he, he knows that, that somehow, somehow, when the Father glorifies the Son, it's going to do what? It's going to shoot glory right back to the Father. How? You're gonna, we need to take that question. We're going to fold it up and put it in our back pocket, and we'll finish it at the end of the message, okay? How is God, how is Jesus possibly going to glorify the Father when the Father glorifies him? But our application for this is, notice here, in, in the illustration, the example that Jesus gives us, even in his own honor and glory, he's doing what with it? He's directing it back to the Father. Give honor to Jesus. Give the man credit, Jesus, the God-man, who was able to spend a whole lifetime honoring and glorifying the Father. All for God's glory. I don't know about you guys, I can't even go a five-minute span without, with just being focused on God's glory. And he did it a lifetime. And that doesn't even include the suffering that he's about to endure. So give him credit, give him glory, give him praise. Jesus, the one who, who lived a lifetime glorifying the Father. And follow his example, friends. How much of our lives are we spending it trying to glorify ourselves? Just think, just think about that for a minute. Think about the times in your life, the stories you tell yourself. I was telling my wife the other day, I had this problem, maybe you can relate, where I tell myself, like retell myself conversations from the day, and it, always, I'm the great guy. I come up with the answer. I'm wonderful, right? It's all about giving who the glory? Me. That's not what Jesus, Jesus spent his whole life glorifying the Father. So let's give him honor and give him glory. Point number two, Jesus deserves glory because he gives eternal life. Let's head back to the text, that end of verse two. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice here from that, from verse 2, Jesus is the giver of eternal life. He is the one who gives eternal life. John's been screaming at this through this passage, right? The I am statements that we've all talked about, that we've, we've studied on. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the true vine. Jesus has been telling us this whole time, you know what? 
I am the giver. John, excuse me, John has been telling us that Jesus is the giver of life. He gives eternal life. Here, I love this verse. Here, J Jesus lays out what eternal life is. Do you guys, did you guys catch that? Do you, do you just, this is one worth memorizing. Okay, this is one internalizing and meditating on. I'll reread it because it's just so good. And this is eternal life. Isn't this a question that I would love to have answered? Jesus, what is eternal life? And maybe before we read it, right, for a spoiler, we could spend some time just asking ourselves, what do you think eternal life is? But Jesus tells us, you know what, I, I, as much as our answers may be interesting, I think we should go with his. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know what eternal life is, brothers, sisters, friends? Eternal life is knowing God and his king, Jesus. It's not about just knowing, oh, I know about God, or I know about the Bible. I know a lot about the Bible. It's, this, is, this is about knowing. This is intimacy language. This is a closeness to God. We talked about this in the Old Testament. All those passages that had the cloud coming down and God moving in with his people and God living in the tent with his people in the tabernacle and then God moving into the temple so you could go and God lived in the city. But what was the thing we said in all of those illustrations? What was the problem? There was what? Even in Psalm 24, you want to go up on God's hill, but what? What do you need to go up there? You need what? Clean hands. You need a righteous heart. What's the problem? I want to get to God. I want to be close to God. I want to live with God. But there's a barrier, and the barrier is what? My sin. Your sin. Because if we get too close to God, He's going to do what? His glory is going to what? Just blast us to the ground dead. He's dangerous, friends. But thanks be to Jesus. Jesus tells us that eternal life is knowing God and knowing His King. That is what eternal life is. So much of our culture has so many different views of what eternal life is or what heaven is, right? And we can slip into that. Sometimes, you know, it's not even heaven. It's a, it's a, a better place, right? They're off to a better place, right? What, what, is our, what is our culture, what does our world mean when they say a better place? You ever think about that? What do you think about when you talk about, when, we, when you hear eternal life? Are you, like me, guilty of sometimes buying into what our world sells eternal life as, or a better place, or heaven? So often our world, I think, is caught up in that being about wealth, all our desires being met, right? Being with our loved ones, which is ironic because at holidays, you like don't want to be with your loved ones, but then when you die, you want to be with them again forever. I did, something's not connecting with me on that one. <laughs> it's like you avoid them on earth. Why now when you die, you want to be with them? I, I'm not tracking um, on that one. So, right? It's our culture, I mean, heaven or, or, or a better place, right? It's about, it's about getting all you want, usually, right? And that, that's actually not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about eternal life. This is what it's talking about when it talks about eternal life. Some aspects of how our culture sees heaven, you know what they are? They're half-truths. 
which is, you know, it's just right back to Genesis 3. What does Satan do? He, he, he doesn't tell you right out lies, right? He just, he just gets close enough. Just half-truths, right? Sometimes three-quarter truths, they're really close, right? I mean, after all, the streets of heaven are made of gold, right? Do you, do you get the point? The point is because it's not because you're rich. It's because gold is as common as asphalt, right? It's worthless up there. Why? Why is gold worthless? Why, why is heaven so great? Why is eternal life so great? Do you see it in Jesus' words? It's because eternal life is relationship with God and with his son, Jesus. Eternal life is about being close to your creator, the one who knows you best, the one who loves you more than anyone, the one who literally formed you and being close to him. That's what eternal life is about. And as I prepared for this message, this point has been bothering me for the last several weeks. I confess that I have too often in my life not believed that eternal life is intimacy with God and with his King Jesus. I realize as I was just working my way through this passage and just, 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 I just struggle with the fact that so often I think other things are better than Jesus in, the, in, in my relationship with God. I often value money or people's thoughts about me more than I value my walk with Jesus. More than I value that I can be close to the Father, to my Creator. I so often in my, in my prayer time, in my life, in my, in, my, in my head, I say, yeah, yeah, it'd be great to be close to you, God, but wouldn't it also be great to have a ton of money? Right? Because closeness to God doesn't pay the bills. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it, it's been hard to think through. And, and um, Blair knows this. I shared with Pastor Blair and even my wife. She knew I was wrestling through this. And last night, I, I, I remember I was standing at the, dish, at the sink doing dishes. And just a thought, just, just a profound uh, peace rolled over me. As I, as I stood, I was wrestling. You know, you know how you're like half thinking, just doing the dishes and thinking, thinking about this message and thinking about sharing this. And this profound peace rolled over me. And, and um, cause just because I've been sitting in my failure and, and I, just, I just felt the Spirit communicate and remind me, I do fail. But, but this passage is not about me. It's about Jesus. And eternal life is not up to me. It's, about, it's up to him. And, uh, man, that just, just comforted me. It just, it just, a comfort poured over me. And my wife was working on things. She knew I was wrestling through this. And she came, she said, how are you feeling? I just said, I, I feel so much better. I just realized, I was, like I frequently do, I was making it about myself and not about the king. Guys, Jesus... He gives eternal life. 
that we may have relationship with God the Father and with Him. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you don't, if you're going, Seth, what does this mean? This seems so like abstract. I, I know it seems abstract. I, I, I get it. Th that makes total sense. I'm trying my best to clarify. Fortunately, Jesus made it confusing, so I'm just in the same vein of thought as him. But eternal life, life everlasting, is a relationship with God. It is fellowship. It is closeness and intimacy. Relationship with God, be, be, eternal life is almost as if God, you were married to God. He was your spouse. Or how about this one? Living in the same city as him. Being his people, like he is your king and you are his, you are his, his person. Or how about this one? Eternal life is like you're the best friend with God and you talk to him face to face. Or like God is your, is your perfect father. Not like, the, not like the cheap imitation that I am so often to my children. Like a really good father. And his son is, is your brother. The king is your brother. That's what eternal life is. What happens if we find ourselves and we're not feeling eternal life? We're not sensing it. We feel distant from God. Or how about you don't even know God in the first place? You know what? The answer is the same. When we find, that, we find ourselves in that place, we confess and we repent and we turn to Him. Confession looks like this. Jesus, I failed. Jesus, please forgive me for my sin. And repentance means turning away from that sin you've been practicing. If you find yourself back there again, guess what? The solution is, it's Freedom Group. Plug for Freedom Group. Solution is, repent. <laughs> it's confess and repent. Rinse and repeat, baby. Eternal life, relationship with God is, is, is given to us. Just like when you're pursuing a relationship for those who are married, you know, when, you, when I was pursuing my wife, I spent all my time with her, right? We went on dates, just the two of us. We went on double dates. Those were fun, back before kids. We, right, we, 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 we went to gatherings together, and, and we, we, we were at Moody. We sat next to each other at chapel. That's when you really knew it was official, right? Right? We served together. We worked together. We did everything together. What didn't we do together, Right? That was when we were growing our relationship. It's just like that with God. You want to grow your relationship? Do everything with Him. Invite Him in on everything. This is one aspect of your relationship with God. This is a, a public aspect of your relationship with God. Your personal prayers, that's a personal aspect, right? Going to small group, that's an act. We call these the spiritual disciplines in the church. And it's what Christians have been doing ever since Jesus went away into heaven. We practice them in order to grow our relationship with Him. We don't do it in order that he loves us. Guess what, guys? He already loves us. You know the proof of it? He sent his son. So we practice these things so that we can grow our relationship with God. Are you growing your relationship with God? If you don't have one, begin. Just like what we said. Confess, repent, and begin that relationship.
Some of us may have been Christians for a while. My challenge to us is, are you growing? Are you investing in your relationship with God? Or is it stale and stagnant? I promise you, friends, the enemy wants you to think if it's stale and stagnant, it's his fault. It's, it's not his fault, right? Just like when I have to like ask for forgiveness from my wife, it's always her fault, right? And then I finally have to realize what? It's probably my fault. Man, God is, he wants to have relationship with us. Are you pursuing that relationship with him? Lastly, Jesus deserves glory because of his position next to God. Check this out, verse 4, going back to John. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you guys see that right there? So, so Jesus, he's been serving, like we've already said, he's been serving to do the work of his Father. And now his request is return back to the place where he was in the beginning to head back up to the throne next to God. You see that? And so here's a couple passages. This is a huge deal in the New Testament. This is a, this is a big deal that the authors of the, the, the apostles keep bringing up. This is a theme for sure. And usually what they're quoting is, is this passage from Psalm uh, 110. It's a super interesting one. We don't have time to dive in. I would love to. But this Psalm, from, uh, this Psalm 110, it's a Psalm from David. And he's, he's witnessing a conversation between God, the Lord, and his Lord, David's king. And he's seeing the two of them communicate, and they're talking right next to each other. There's God on the throne, and he's next to David's king. And this has been a riddle. This was a riddle in the Jewish faith because how could David, because we know that David is God's special king, and we know that someone from the line of David is going to rule eternally, but how could his son be greater than David? And this was a riddle that the Jews were constantly kind of arguing. In fact, and so the apostles picked this up, and Jesus is the one in Matthew, it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in Matthew 22, Jesus brings this up to the Pharisees, and they just don't have an answer. How can David be witnessing this conversation? Who is David's son that he is seated next to God? You guys understand this because being seated next to a king means you are king. If you, have to, if you get to sit next to God in his glory, if you imagine a throne room and God is on his throne and, you, and, and someone is sitting next to him, it means they are what? They are equal. And so Jesus offers this riddle. Hey, how is this possible? And they just, they just plead the fifth. I don't know. We, uh, next. And after that, they don't ask him any more questions. That just quiets him right up. And so what, this gets brought up. And then again, look, look at this, Acts, uh, Acts 2 and 5. We get Peter, and it's, it's at Pentecost. And then, and then again, when he's arrested, he brings up again Jesus' position. He says, yes, yes, you killed Jesus. He came back from the dead. And not only did he come back from the dead, but do you know where he is? He's seated at God's right hand. That's where he is. And this final passage is, is, is worth reading. Please read, if you get a chance, Acts 7. This is, the, this is when Stephen is martyred. And at the end, when he gives this beautiful speech, they're, all, they're crunching their teeth and they're about to go, they're about to do something bad to him. And he looks up in the heavens, it says, the text says, the heavens open up and he sees God on his throne. And guess who's seated next to him? 
Jesus. And just like what you and I would do if we had a divine vision, we would what? Say it. He says, oh my goodness, I see God and I see the Son of Man right next to him. And they do what? What is their response? They kill him right then and there. Because he saw where Jesus was. Now, don't lose the significance. Don't get lost because it's like, yeah, big deal. Jesus is at the throne next to God. What's the big deal? The big deal is this. Where did Jesus, what is his request? Look in the passage. What is his request? Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What does that mean? Before Jesus came down, where was he? He was on the throne. Then he steps down and he lives on this earth and he ministers to us and he dies for us and God brings him back to the dead and then God raises him up and puts him where? On the throne. So Jesus in eternity past is on the throne and Jesus in eternity future on the throne. Why did he come down? If you just are looking at God on his throne, it doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus step down? All he got from eternity past to eternity future is some holes on his hands and on his feet and on his side, and he's become a man. But when we zoom out on the picture, eternity past, you have God on his throne and Jesus next to him. And you zoom out and guess what? Who's in the throne room? Nobody. Why? Because no people can be there. Why? Because of our sin. And then when we move forward in eternity future, we zoom out and what do we see? God on his throne, Jesus on his throne. And who's sitting there? A bunch of humans worshiping God because finally we have what? Access to him. Because of what? Because of what Jesus did on this earth. So that's why we give Jesus glory. That's why we talk about Jesus is seated at the right hand. There is a man on that throne. Do you know that? And his name is Jesus. And he is the God man who came. He did not need to come and save us, but he did because why? Because he loves us. And because he loved the Father and he wanted to reunite the Father to what? His creation. We are his creation who he so loved and step down out of glory in order to save us. And so what did God do because of Jesus' willing sacrifice? God says what? You are right back up on top. And every time your name is said, what's going to happen? All those humans are going to what? Bow down to you. Every knee is going to touch the ground in submission to you. Because of what? Because he, Jesus, was willing to do what? Step down into our world and die for us. Jesus did not have to come for his own sake. He came for you and I. He came to reunite us with our creator. That's why he deserves glory. Friends, the, 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 the application here is this. If that's what he was willing to do, if he was in glory and he steps down, we should be willing to orient our entire lives around him. We should, we, we, our schedules, our thoughts, our habits, our, our conversations, 
should all orient ourselves around the King, Jesus, who is worthy of glory because he reunited us with our Creator. My challenge and encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, is what areas in our life are not oriented towards Jesus? What areas are we failing to realize that we potentially love more than Jesus? Our Savior and our King who was willing to sacrifice everything for us to have relationship with Him. The good news, if you find yourself, remember, if you find yourself distant from God, away from eternal life, it's simple. Confession and repentance. Turn to Jesus. Friends, eternal life is available to us today. We don't have to wait till we die. But it's because of Jesus and what he did. We've been reading Jesus' prayer, so, so it seems fitting for us to close in a time of prayer. So as the band comes up, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll be led in some guided prayer time. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. May you be glorified and praised in our lives, Lord. Jesus, thank you for giving us access, access to the Father. Lord, confess and ask for your forgiveness for the times that I, that we fail to recognize and give you the glory that you're due. Lord, help us, teach us, show us, reveal to us the ways that our lives are not oriented towards your throne. Lord, uh, just show us the times that, that we practice idolatry, practice covetousness, desiring things that are not you. Lord, pray for us as a congregation, as a people. Pray that we would remind each other, encourage each other to chase after you with all that we have. That knowing you, Lord, and knowing you, Jesus, King, is eternal life. Help us, Lord, we pray. Convict us, comfort us. Receive our glory and praise. Amen.